This is episode number 169 with serial entrepreneur and author of How to Launch Your Side Hustle, Troy Underwood. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. My name is Nick Carrier, lifestyle entrepreneur and fitness trainer. My goal is for you to gain more clarity on what the best version of yourself looks like, what the best version of yourself is capable of, and then to give you the tools, tips, and inspiration on how to make that person come to life. Today, I bring you Troy Underwood. Troy is a serial entrepreneur, technologist, economist, and innovator. He revolutionized the motor vehicle industry with the nation's first electronic title system for financial institutions. His business, FDI, sold for $106 million back in 2007. Troy is the author of How to Launch Your Side Hustle, Start and Scale a Business with Minimal Capital. In this episode, Troy discusses what it means to be a necessity entrepreneur. He talks about how to determine if a side hustle is worth pursuing, when to transition from side hustle to full-time hustle, why when you're a new business you shouldn't go after the big customers first, and so much more. Make sure to take a screenshot of this episode when you're listening and post it to your Instagram story and tag me at carrier underscore best you and let me know your favorite part. Be sure to go grab Troy's book, How to Launch Your Side Hustle, if you're an entrepreneur to get tips on things that you could be doing differently to scale your business more efficiently. Grab it if you currently have a side hustle and you're looking for tips to turn it into a real business. Or if you have a business that you're looking to sell, this book brings you from starting a side hustle to selling off your business in easy to grasp steps. Also, if you're struggling to exercise during this quarantine, go to nickcarrier.com fitness and pick up my ebook, The Body Weight Grind. That's just $10. It's a four-week bodyweight workout program that is perfect during the quarantine. But for now, it's time. It's time to work on getting closer to the best version of yourself today with serial entrepreneur, Troy Underwood. All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm super fired up to have the author, Troy Underwood, with me today, the author of How to Launch Your Side Hustle, Start and Scale a Business with Minimal Capital. I just want to start by saying, Troy, thanks so much for spending the time with me today. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. So I just dove into your book, and the best thing about it for me is it's like a quick, easy read, but you have so many great practical tips and and tools and, and knowledge that you can start to apply, like I was telling you uh, before the interview, that you can start to apply right away. And I was just dove into it the last couple of days and was able to complete it. And I know I already have some great ideas that I can try to start implementing in my business right now. So I know for all you entrepreneurs out there or anybody who's thinking about it or just anybody kind of in, in business in general, you can have some great tips that you can take out of this. But to, in- to introduce you a little bit further, Troy, you're an industry disruptor and serial entrepreneur, part technologist, economist, and innovator, and you revolutionized the motor vehicle industry with the nation's first electronic title system for financial institutions, and your business, FDI, uh, sold for $106 million in 2007, Um, and we'll get into a lot of that good stuff right here. But basically, I want to start by defining the major term or philosophy in your book, if you will being necessity entrepreneur or necessity entrepreneurship. And this really resonated a lot with me. And I'll get into that probably a little bit more in a second. But I want you to kind of just start off by defining what it means to be a necessity entrepreneur. A necessity entrepreneur. And there's a lot of different definitions of entrepreneur. and, And I'm not saying any of them are wrong. In my definition of a necessity entrepreneur, a failure is not an option. 
So there's a lot of entrepreneurs and, and they're great. You know, Howard Hughes, risk taker, but he's not an entrepreneur, not a necessity entrepreneur. If, if he did something and it failed, he always had daddy's money to run back to. Uh, I even debated Elon Musk on this one time about the definition of an entrepreneur. Is it an intermediary between labor and capital? Or what about the other 99.9% of people that could consider themselves an entrepreneur that don't have $50 million and they're going to go to Sand Hill and Silicon Valley and get venture capital or even angel investors to pump in money? What if they have to do it with minimal capital? So a necessity entrepreneur is, is for the other 99% of the people that want to do something entrepreneurial but they don't have either a huge trust fund to fall back on, huge bank loans, venture capital. You know, how can you do this with the, the necessity of the skills that you've got? And that's all you can rely on. You know, it's kind of like you're stuck out in the wilderness and you have your Bowie knife and that is all. Only what you have up here in your heart, in your head and your skills and your, your calm determination, and perseverance. Yeah, no, I really like this because I've I've heard this idea from a lot of people. And one guy that I interviewed before is a guy named Casey Neistat, and he's a YouTube personality. And he says that one of the biggest things that he had to his advantage was the sense that he didn't have a like a trust fund to fall back on. He didn't have a backup plan or anything like that. Failure was not an option. So for you personally, why was failure not an option for you? Why did you have this heightened level of necessity, if you will, early on? Well, one, there was no money to fall back on. If I went to apply for a bank loan, they were going to say no. I mean, who was I? I didn't have a real job. You know, my mother-in-law kept telling me that over and over. But I, I knew I could do something. I had the skills to do it. In my day, my skill, I was a software developer. I was a computer consultant. So I could go out there and actually do the work myself as opposed to an entrepreneur who might fall into the definition of an intermediary between labor and capital, where they go out there, borrow money, and hire a bunch of people to do the, the, the main core of the work. I, I didn't borrow money because I wasn't in, in a position where anyone's going to loan me money, and I could do all the work myself. So in that sense, I started out you know, with a, a skill set that I had from college and, and my interest. But at that point in my life, I had children, I had a house payment. The failure was not an option is because unlike, and I talk about it in the book, there's people like Goodyear, for example. He was so obsessed with vulcanized rubber that he forgot he had children. You, you can't do that. You, you have to have a complete, I'm more like a utilitarian, where it's the entire package, not just can I solve this problem, this puzzle, can I make money, whatever your end goal is. It's a holistic collective set of uh, end results, deliverables. And, and some of that might be internal peace, tranquility, family, harmony, things like that, that go a little bit beyond just money. Money's, you know, it's its own end reward, if you will, for some people. But for others, it's just kind of a means to keep score, an intermediary. It's just a, an exchange of value. Yeah. So it depends on how you look at it. Yeah. And I like how you said that because that's kind of how I try to communicate to other people with the best version of yourself. I think a lot of people, when they use that phrase, a lot of people immediately think profession. Like I want to rise to the level of super successful in my profession, but like getting to the best version of yourself isn't just 
being super successful with your profession. It's being able to still be a good father, be a good husband, have, um, you know, a, a spiritual life, maybe if, if something that's your, that's what you're into, but being that best version of yourself is something that you define for yourself and for you that, that had that, that broad spectrum of all these different things that you wanted to make sure that you kept in check. Absolutely. So if people are, I think a lot of people right now think being an entrepreneur is super sexy, super something that I should want to try to do early on, what should people be asking themselves to see if they are a necessity entrepreneur or not? Because one of the things that you say earlier in your book is not everybody is an entrepreneur. So what can people ask themselves to determine whether or not they are? Well, they've got to do an honest, in-the-mirror look, an assessment of their personality. How well do they fail? If they can't fail, I mean, I've said before, failure is not an option, but you've got to define the failure. Is it in a big picture? Is it on a particular project? What is the, the definition there for failure? Your perseverance. If somebody knows that they're going to give up, after they strike out the first time or, or miss a bucket, they're, they're not going to work in this field. So if they, if they can be a lot of bit self-reliant and they have to have a lot of confidence, I, I go into this in the book too, there's a, there's a balance between being overly arrogant and so confident that you know you will not, or in my case, cannot fail. Um, you know, when I say failure is not an option, you know you're going to go out there and in, in my case, I, I was doing things on the internet before Al Gore invented the internet. So when I go out there and talk to people, you know, I, I did the, the electronic lean and title, and I would talk to financial institution, you, you might as well have thought them I was talking about sending them to the moon in, in their automobile, because it was so far beyond what they could comprehend at the time. So you need to be resourceful, you need to have a a lot of skills. You, you've got to be a little bit of a renaissance man because if you only have one skill and you're not any good at hiring the other skills that are needed, then you're going to fall short there too. But don't be afraid to get in there and try it. And then you have to actually be malleable. You have to be able to move. So I, I kind of equate it to like a Bernie Sanders, all these sports analogies. You know, if you draw out a play and accidentally there's some big defensive player in front of you, well, move. Move to the left, move to the right. Even if the play called you to go straight up the hole, you may not want to do that. I mean, LaDainian Tomlinson did it. Bernie Sanders, a lot, a lot of these, um, I know I just said Bernie Sanders. So Barry Sanders was a, you know, a, a back known for running like that. Just he'll go where, make his own play. You got to be able to make your own play. And when the plans change because of some other, uh, input, you have to be able to change with it. And if that drives you crazy, don't do this. Go go work for a big company. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, you, you need to have some stability in your paycheck. So that, that honest assessment of your own personality, can you, can you relax? Can you work hard? And, and if you know you can't, then, you know, whatever it is, and Work for, work for the government. There's a lot of great government jobs. I'm not dissing government work. Just because this side worked for me, I think I would have been a, a really lousy government employee. I could be wrong. Maybe I'd have been great. But I can also go three, four, five, six months without a paycheck. 
and and that's not you say I had a bunch of money saved up. It's you've got to be able to control your expenses. So if you have to, you know, eat at eight and twelve and four and eight and twelve and four, then maybe you don't want to be a wilderness survivalist. You know, you might go two days without eating. And that's actually harder mentally than it is physically. Can you mentally do this? Yeah. And it doesn't drive you crazy. Because I would just go, that's okay. Everything will work out. I have that much confidence in myself. Right. No, I, I think what you're basically everything that you're talking about is talking about being, have a heightened sense of self-awareness. Because I think that self-awareness is one of the most important things to get closer to the best version of yourself. And you don't want to pursue something if you see in a, a true, honest look at yourself that you're not willing or capable to do whatever that thing is and whatever that thing takes. Um, and I feel like that's kind of what you're talking about in terms of determining whether or not you should go into entrepreneurship. So this necessity idea, one of the a super famous quote is that necessity is the the mother of invention. And for me, I've always felt that when I have that feeling of necessity, I have a heightened sense of urgency and I'm I'm willing to do things that I wouldn't otherwise be willing to do. So I'm always trying to find ways to kind of put that stress on myself or put that, that urgency on myself. So are there things that you currently do in your life to try to spark that level of necessity for yourself? Well, that's an interesting question because I just told someone yesterday, my current undertaking. So it was real simple just to go out there, find the number one problem in the world and solve it after I'd sold my company and retired. But you mentioned in the introduction that I had another company before that and I sold that and retired. And then I started another company because retirement got a little bit boring there. Actually, my kids told me to go back to work because it was driving them crazy that I would be helping them with their homework all day. But I didn't need, I had, at that point, I had plenty of money. Well, then in 2008, you know, everything fell apart in the economy. And I went from having plenty of money and kind of running the company for fun to, oh, no, I have lost an enormous amount of money. And now I have to do this. So the psychological side of that, for me, it invigorated me. It drove me. For my ex-wife, it drove her in a very different direction. She couldn't handle it nearly with the, the same enthusiasm, if you will, that I could handle it. Because now I'm going, oh my, now, well, A, I have to do it, and B, it's a challenge. And, and I actually, it, it actually surprisingly, or some people will actually jump out of a window when that happens. It's like, you had a lot of money and now you have negative money. What are you gonna do? I'm like, well, I'll do it again. Because A, I had all the confidence in the world and I had the talent and I had the, and I knew, I mean, so I didn't have any qualms about that and things stopped. I, I looked at how I changed the way I did business, but it's the personality side of it. How does it affect your, everyone else around you? How does that affect your spouse, your children, your, your parents, your siblings, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. that's what I thought was, was interesting. I told somebody yesterday, if I had to, run the company that I'm, I'm working now because I had no money, it would be very successful. But right now I kind of dabble in it. 
what other than a lack of or a deficiency of money drives that necessity level for you? Well, for you see, for me right now, it's not a necessity. I am, but certainly lack of, of money is one of the, the, the biggest, if not for some people, the biggest driver that you have to do it. You, you know, maybe in certain cases, you know, a national disaster and you come up and have to come up with the, the, the cure for, you know, a particular virus that's going on right now, or, you know, you have to do something and money's not the object. You, know, you have to cross that river. You have to defeat the enemy. You have to do whatever you have to do. That's your necessity. That's your driver. Uh, for most entrepreneurs, it is money. There's a lot of people that that's the biggest factor. But I, on the money front, a lot of people will blame their failure on lack of money. And that's usually not the biggest reason that they fail. Yeah, no doubt. So a lot of people, diving a little bit more into the contents of the book, a lot of people nowadays currently have side hustles or currently have something that they're kind of pursuing. How can they determine if that thing, if that product or that service or that idea is something worth pursuing or not? What's the questions that they should ask about that particular thing? To do that, and that's an excellent question, they need to, to set themselves outside of themselves, ask themselves very objective questions as if an angel investor or a, a venture capital investor was going to ask them questions and how would they answer them? Matter of fact, they might hire a consultant or ask, ask a, a friend who's a good enough friend that when they get really difficult answers, they can take it because they're going to ask questions like, well, why do you think this can succeed? How do you think that you can keep losing money every month for the next 25 months with no reserve capital and succeed at that? You know, a lot of people have very unrealistic expectations and they think just that the right attitude and perseverance that they can do it. That's just kidding yourself that there's no way that that's going to succeed. So pretend they are an investor and they have to ask themselves some deep questions, some financial questions, ask them if they don't know things like EBITDA or income, profit and loss, balance statements, statement of cash flows, you know, things like that. They need to learn some of that. They don't have to be an expert at it. If they're going to be the entrepreneur, they don't have to be a CFO, but they should know some of it. And, and then ask them questions like, will this scale? Can I run this as a small operation and grow it into a bigger operation? And, and the other side of that too is they may not want to. And that's fine too. If they want to just run a small business and keep it small, I didn't. I wanted to run a small business and make it medium size and then make it large and then make it larger. But everything I was doing in the SaaS world, the software as a services, it lends itself to scalability. But I would have done that whether I was a furniture manufacturer or a bicycle mechanic. I would have thought, you know, how can you scale this? If I'm going to run one bed and breakfast, can I run 10? If I run 10, can I run 100? Can I run them worldwide? Part of that is just my mindset. That's how I think. But some people would tire and just say, I want to run one bed and breakfast. You know what? Then they should just retire and run one bed and breakfast. But if somebody else wants to really run it as a larger business, then they need to ask themselves, can it scale? And am I the person to scale it? Or what kind of help do I need to bring in? to make this happen. Okay. So, so let's say somebody, I mean, I'll just stick with asking it in terms of the bed and breakfast. Let's say somebody wants to run their own bed and breakfast and kind of, you know, is pursuing that 
part-time as that side hustle. And this is going to be different for every single situation, which is why I'm just kind of sticking with the bed and breakfast right now. But at what point does the entrepreneur decide, when's the right point to decide transition from side hustle to full-time? Is it money? Is it, I need more time, so I should do it now? Is it, I have the belief in the business? Again, I kind of know it's probably going to be a little bit different for each different example, but just take that and run with it. Well, sure. And the thing about it is there isn't a formula. You know, as a mathematician, I couldn't write a formula that said, here's when you will do this. It's, it could be a life event. It could be you got fired from your job. You get fired and then you say, oh, nuts. And then the next day or month or year, you say, wait a second, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I got a project. I didn't get a project. I mean, something like that. And you, you, have to, you have to take that opportunity that life gives you and be ready. I think most people need to be a little braver if they want to move their side hustle. So we're talking about launching your side hustle. And then the next step in launching your side hustle is getting rid of your full-time job or your, 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 your cushion, your safety cushion. You know, when can you drop that blanket and run on your own? And then, and even in running your business, you're going to have all those decisions. Now I'm going to hire an employee. Now I'm going to hire 10 employees. And each one of those is scary. You know, getting rid of that first job, that's your, that's your safety, that's your blanket, is not easy to, to walk in one day and quit. And you can go to a lot of uh, you know, multi-level marketing, for example. And all these people go to these multi-level marketing meetings and they're all pumped up. And their whole thing is to tell their boss, up yours, I quit, which I'm wholly opposed to. Not, I'm not opposed to quitting your job, but to walk out and say, up yours. It's like, wait a second. All that person did is employ you for 10 years. And now, because you think that you're so hyped that you think you can go off and run this multi-level marketing. And then and what happens, you know, 15 months later, they're back looking for a job and they wish that former boss would have told them. I'm not really looking at that. That's not a necessity entrepreneur. But you got to be a little bit crazy. You've got to be a little bit lucky. You've got to be a, a lot prepared, but you don't have to be overeducated. I'm not telling everybody, oh, wait until you, you know, fill in whatever achievement you need to fill. Wait till you finish your bachelor's. Wait till you finish your, if only you had a PhD. If only, you don't need to do any of that. If you have that entrepreneurial mindset and you can do it, drop out of Harvard and start a company. Yeah. So what, what, what it sounds like to me that I'm hearing, and you talked about a lot of people need to be braver and it's about being able to get to the point to be able to put it aside. So do you think, not that this is a formula, but do you think in the grand scheme of things, it's the person has to be willing to be fully committed to whatever it is that side hustle is? At some point you have to, you have to make that transition and be fully committed Um, back to the necessity, back to failure is not an option. So you know that you have to make that work. And it's really tough for people. And the the real irony here is it's sometimes tougher for people that have a great job. You're out there. Your salary is great. You can pay all of your bills and then some. Going on, you know, two-week vacations twice, three times a year is not a financial burden. 
it's really difficult for someone to stop that lifestyle and start their own job as, a, as an entrepreneurial undertaking. Again, different than going out there and getting $50 million in financing. Yeah. What, what does the mindset shift have to be with somebody like that? If somebody is comfortable with their job because they're making plenty of money, money is not necessarily the issue, but they kind of see this other path that I could do, but it's, but it's risky, so I don't really know. So what's the mindset shift look like for the person who is comfortable with where they are, but then makes the decision to take on this new risk? Well, and that's, that's all certainly in their mind, and it's all a matter of what do they want to accomplish in their life, not, not just financially, because you may, you may make less money. You got a job out there, and you're making three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year with, uh, you know, forty-five days of paid vacation or whatever. I mean, how cush in one respect can you get? But if you're not happy with it, that's the bigger problem. If you're doing that and you're happy, then you got to say, would you be happier doing something else? So it's it's all about that utility, or maybe the job that you have that's making great money is, you know, literally killing you. Uh, whether it's environmental, whether it's stress, maybe you just don't like it. Maybe you think you're doing something that doesn't fit your, your, your ethics or your personality, your lifestyle. At that point, somebody has to convince you or you have to convince yourself that you have to make a change, which is really difficult to do. Most people end up doing tomorrow just what they did yesterday. At some point, you have to say, this is killing me. I need to stop and do something else. Yeah. I had a person, one of the first people to ever read the book, and she made a lot of money in financial services. And she read the book and quit her job. And I told her, well, that's not exactly what I said to do, but good for you. <laughs> but that's brave. So you have to be, you have to be brave if you're gonna do this. Now, to me, a little bit of brave, yes, but a little bit of an accident, if I was more employable, it's not like as, as a computer software developer, I couldn't get a job in Silicon Valley. It, it wasn't that tough, but it's like, did I want that job? Yeah. And I, I seemed, for whatever reason, since I was in elementary school, to like to work for myself. Now, not that I couldn't work for others. People have said, Troy, you couldn't work for other people. When I was at IBM, I, I loved everybody there. They were brilliant. I still stay in touch with them. It was an incredible working environment. Other places, you know, not so much. I worked for a bank and they didn't appreciate anything I did. And maybe I just didn't have the right, you know, the right boss. I called her little Napoleon. But that, that person maybe does you a great favor when they fired you. So gotcha. Ollie, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, okay. So let's say somebody now kind of moving along the, um, the timeline here, let's say somebody starts and, and launches their business, has a product, has a service. I really like how you talk about kind of early on to don't go after the biggest fish too early, kind of when you're not ready and to, to grow smartly, if you will. So I kind of want you to just talk a little bit about that idea and why that's the approach that people should be taking. So when I did this, and this may not apply to a corner bakery, but in my world, I was a software developer and I had come up with this, this way to handle motor vehicle titles electronically. 
very scalable. I mean, literally, I could do the work of 100 people. If I handled it all electronic and they were handling it all paper, big, 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 a lot of the big, big financial institutions that have millions of car loans. So for millions of car loans, they'd have millions of pieces of paper, whether they're loan documents or, in this case, titles. And when I converted those all to electronic titles, I saw huge economies of scale. I mean, really, all I had to do was get more bandwidth, bigger hard drives. You know, yeah, the software needed to be upgraded. I mean, but that type of thing. In other words, the marginal cost of an additional transaction in any SaaS model is very, very small. So when I was starting out, I didn't have huge money to spend on, on anything, really, but certainly not on marketing. And I very purposefully did not want any competitor to look at this right now and say, ah, huge opportunity. So if they looked at the one vendor that was really doing, and at one point there, there were two vendors, and I talk about this in the book, one was EDS, a Ross Perot company. Ross Perot's on the board of directors of General Motors, General Motors, GMAC. All these have changed now, but this was back in the 80s when we started doing this. And I'm like, how can I compete with a company like that? And one of the reason things I came up with is how to compete with a company like that is don't make too much money. I know it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but if I go out there and start charging huge sums of money and get two or three customers, then all of a sudden EDS and, and other vendors are going to look at it and say, huge opportunity. But if they look at it and say, oh, yes, it's small enough to keep a micro business. I mean, maybe at that point, you know, we have two or three employees. It's small enough. It's large enough to keep a micro business running, but it's not large enough to keep a big business running. In other words, EDS was so incompetent at this particular uh, niche, probably because they didn't devote any resources to speak of to it. They were off running things like the Massachusetts Registry, and they ran computer systems for airlines and small countries. So I was way too small for them to even worry about. So, but I did see huge potential in it. And I thought if I could just keep a low profile, in other words, stay under the radar just for a while until you get your operation functional, and then you can run up against the big boys. Otherwise, and they are now, now there's a whole bunch of, of uh, vendors, competitors, if you will, that, that are in this field because they saw the way to do it. The same thing with electronic enrollment and eligibility in the next field that I did with health insurance benefits. You know, at first there's only a handful and then people see there's a huge opportunity there and then there's hundreds of, of competitors. But since I knew I was too small to really go head to head with a big competitor, I had to keep it small enough to discourage any serious investment from a competitor in this. And that was, was that basically so you had time to really perfect your product itself? Yes. And not just the product itself, but the whole operation. Because I used to be so, let me say, arrogant. I would tell competitors, I would tell my employees, I could give our product. So I spent all this time, I wrote all this software, yeah, whatever, it's fantastic, but I could give it, the software, to a competitor and they still couldn't beat me. So it's more than just yeah. the software, it's the whole infrastructure. It's everywhere from your marketing presence 
to your receptions, to your, I mean, everything about your whole entity. Can you do customer service? How, how, what are your backups like? What are, I mean, just everything about the, the whole organization and infrastructure beyond just the software. Right. I mean, I got patents on stuff so that, you know, I could go out there and mostly patents was, was to impress your friends, right. to impress prospects, to impress venture capital. It really, for me, now it does very different for other companies that actually have intellectual property that actually carry some legal weight, but don't necessarily think, oh my gosh, if I could only get a patent on that. So get the whole infrastructure together and it's not just the product. A lot of people that can bake a pie, if that's their product or service, may be horrible at running a restaurant or, or even selling pies. Right. Just because you can bake a pie doesn't mean you can sell a pie. And just because you can sell one pie doesn't mean you can sell 10,000 pies. Yeah. So it was all very different. Yeah, no, I really, I really liked this, the idea of don't go after big fish too early. And I really see it a lot in my life. And I think it's a really kind of a, a big life lesson in general in the sense that I think that a lot of times people, especially nowadays, try to move up in their career too quickly before they have the necessary skills knowledge, experience, and that stuff. And if they did move up pretty early, then they wouldn't be able to hold on to that success very long because the the quickness of their elevation would come to their demise and they would fall pretty quickly. And I think you have to build up those bruises. You have to build up those scabs from experiences, skills, and knowledge to be able to sustain the, a level of success finally once you get there a little bit later on. Absolutely. I, I a couple times promoted someone up to and maybe just past their level of incompetency. And it's always a disaster because the chances of taking an employee that you have promoted or given a pay raise, taking them back down of the many people I've done, only one ever stayed with the company after I brought them down a notch. So if you're the boss, don't promote people too quickly yourself included, except for the boss. So <laughs> everything, everything rides on you, right. except what you can delegate. Hopefully you do it well. Mm -hmm. So to kind of continue on this timeline, if you will, I'm going to go into kind of like hiring and, and selling a little bit more in like the relationship sense. So obviously in, in selling and hiring and firing people, you learn a lot about kind of building relationships, how relationships can go off the wayside and that sort of thing. So through these experiences, what have you learned about how to build lasting and meaningful relationships with other people? Uh, and are you talking about on the other people on the vendor side, on the client side, or on the employee side? I'm, not, I'm actually more talking about just like a, a personal, just like kind of a life thing in terms of what can you do? What have you learned from these experiences to build just like relationships with people in general in terms of getting to know the person and that sort of thing? You know, it's really interesting. When I started out, I, I was I was a good software developer, lousy sales person. And, and the one thing that scared me to, to no end was cocktail conversation. I would go and speak with to a group of hundreds, thousands of people. Didn't scare me a bit. But I was supposed to go mingle because as a featured speaker, you, you, you're supposed to go mingle. And I'm like, I don't want to mingle with anybody. Small, I mean, I don't, cocktail conversation, I did not want to do that at all. So here's the, here's the solution to whatever it is that scares you. 
you know, picture it in your mind. You got to do it. You got to be out there. Talk to someone. I had a really dear friend of mine tell me how to get into a conversation when there's three or four other people mingling at a cocktail party, how to get into their conversation. And a little bit of it is you just have to do it. Just be in that conversation, act interested, nod, make eye contact, say, mm-hmm, gently touch them enough. Some of these might be verboten today, but gently touch them on the shoulder or something and, and, and nod attentively and, and, then, and then ask a question. Uh, when I took the Dale Carnegie course, talked about how to use their name. So I know your name, Nick. I'll probably repeat it a couple times because I want to flatter you. Not so much as I want to remember it, which might flatter you, you know, subconsciously. So find an interpersonal skills. I was a little bit more like a, not to equate this with the genius level, but I was a little bit more like a Sheldon Cooper in that I would give an honest, direct answer. Mm. And then why would I talk anymore? I've already said what I have to say. So the opposite of cocktail conversation, small talk. Horrible at small talk. So one of the things you have to do: learn to tie a tie and go out there and sell it. If you're a software developer and you want necessity, well, now your next job is to go sell this really awesome software that you wrote. And how are you going to do that? Put on a tie and go meet with somebody. And then, oh, by the way, you're going to have to start learning how to do marketing. And then you're going to have to learn how to do, and you know, you have to learn all of that. And the the social skills came along with that because I was the opposite of a, a fraternity brother. I mean, I spent my time in a computer science lab. I did not spend my time at fraternity parties mm-hmm. in college. And I don't disparage anybody that did because the people that did probably have much better social skills and never underestimate the value of the economic impact of social skills. They'll probably carry you farther than the economic impact of computer science skills. Well, there was a lot of geeky computer programmers who are now doing quite fine. So what did you have to do to kind of get over this fear of cocktail conversation? Like, I know you talked about how your friend gave you some tips on how to insert yourself into a conversation, but what are the different things that you did or had to do to get over that fear and get a little bit more comfortable with it? Um, sometimes I would make sure I could... You know, it's one of those things, like, oh, picture the whole audience naked or, you know, something like that. When, when I was speaking in front of the audience, especially back in the FDI days with the electronic lean and title, motor vehicle title administration, there, there is a certain confidence building factor that when you walk into the room and you know, you don't believe it, you, you know it, that you know more about this than anyone in the world. It's an understatement to say I was the nation's foremost expert in this. So that gives you a lot of confidence when you're talking about that subject. Now, in in small talk conversation, you're not necessarily talking about that that in the conversation. And the worst thing you can do if you walk into cocktail conversation is say, hi, I'm Troy Underwood. I'm the nation's foremost expert in this. Let me talk to you about it. Don't ever do that. So I would just learn to ask them a question and then see where the conversation went. And unless it came up, I I never talked about anything I did in cocktail conversation. Matter of fact, even when I, not, not at first, but later when I was working a trade show booth, I would not talk first conversation, wouldn't talk about what I do. I did it first. I thought that was a mistake. 
hi, here, let me talk to you about what I do is a bad way to, to greet somebody when they walk into your trade show booth. Just talk to them. Yeah, I think that's a huge lesson. If you're afraid to get into a conversation, realize and make it not about you at all. Like put the conversation on the other person, ask them a question and then let them run with it. And then the conversation should naturally blossom from there. Yes. So I th- I'm really like asking a lot of people this question. What's one of the most important decisions that you made early on in your career that you didn't realize the significance of at the time? I accidentally hired somebody who was just brilliantly exceptional, but I didn't realize how, how significant that was. Sales rep, but he wasn't hired to be a sales rep. Actually, originally when I hired him, it was just because I felt sorry for him and wanted to give him something to do over Christmas vacation. Here, I'll give you something to do. You make a few bucks and come in here and, and work for a few weeks, but your only jobs will be to dump the trash and answer the phone and take a message. And then I'm working with this guy and I realize he's brilliant. That was just, let me see if I can give him more to do. Well, how did you realize he was brilliant? Well, you know, part of it, I I asked him, actually part of it, I watched him play some card games. And I'm like, holy smokes, this guy can count all the cards. I played Risk and Monopoly with him. And I'm like, he actually gets this. That's so funny, too, because... You know, you walk in, he doesn't, he doesn't appear to be anything special. And, and, and he was special in his own way, but that's what you've got to look at as, as the business owner, entrepreneur, president, manager. You've got to look at accentuating the skill sets and exploiting, if you will, the skill sets of each of your employees or vendors or whatever they may be. So we realized that, and even my, my wife at the time said, you know, he's oddly brilliant. Now, I also talk in the book about hiring somebody who's a genius. And I'm not suggesting this particular guy was a genius, but I had a few others that were. And it's a horrible idea to hire a genius. Do not ever do it unless you have all of your infrastructure in place. If you can protect that genius from themselves, not if, but when they screw up, which will they do all the time, So when they're not completely, overwhelmingly, incredibly brilliant, they're just as stupid, careless. They're not thoughtless. I guess they are thoughtless because they don't even think about it. They'll just make a mistake and destroy whatever they just made. So in the software world, you need to make sure that all your backups are in really good condition, that your processes and procedures for security are all in place before you hire a genius. And and I can talk about that in more detail. But with this particular guy, when I was selling the software, as a a software developer, somebody could be considered a little bit of an artiste. You write this software, you are an artist, just as if you created music or, or you made canvas art or something else. And to a certain extent, I wanted people to say, hey, Troy, that's really neat. I think that software you wrote is awesome. That's going to help my life. That's going to help my business. And there's there's something kind of satisfying about that. Well, working with this sales rep I told you about, he didn't care about that at all. Now, he did care about the kill. He wanted that sale. And he didn't get paid commission. Commission, money motivates people. 
I was a, a little bit motivated by money, certainly, but I also wanted people to go, hey, Troy, that software is neat. This sales rep didn't care at all about neat. He wanted the kill of the sale. And so I wrote some software, a, a complimentary tool, an add-on tool to my main software. And I gave it away free. I mean, it was really, really kind of cool. I needed the financial institutions, the banks, the credit unions. I needed them to be accurate in their data. This really worked well if the data was accurate and the most difficult string of characters to enter accurately is a VIN. So the vehicle identification number is typically for all post-1982 non-gray market vehicles is 17 characters of letters and numbers and each one of those characters means something. So I wrote some software that would do VIN validation, a VIN validation algorithm. Matter of fact, I took it so far, patented it that if you put in an incorrect VIN, I will tell you what the correct VIN is. So I actually had a patent on character substitution and people are going, well, that's just autocorrect. Well, yeah, but I did it in the eighties. So yeah, I had that autocorrect, you know, long before Apple ever did it. And although people complain about it because they're like, I didn't want that word. So the characters uh, in in a VIN, like no O's, no I's, no Q's, but an O looks a lot like a zero. So they were always wrong. I mean, not always, but you know, you had a you had an 80, 90% chance of entering a VIN incorrectly if you're the lien holder. Not the DMV. Out of millions of titles, I think the DMV, I could count maybe two mistakes on the VIN. However, the lien holders made mistakes all the time. So if I could correct the data at the source, which is at the bank or credit union or, or captive finance company, then the data going in is good because garbage in, garbage out, and now the whole process worked flawlessly. I gave that routine away and the sales rep came to me and said, Troy, you're the stupidest smart guy I know or or, or the smartest dumb guy, I'm not sure which it is. I can sell the same thing you just gave away for $40,000. And I'm like, well, name that tune. I mean, if you can do that, do it. And he did it. And he did it again and again and again and 25% annual maintenance and installation charges. And I'm like, for what I just gave away for free, you just got like $50,000. And then within the next year, he did it like 10 times. I mean, it was just, so what an incredible learning experience. It benefited him, it benefited me, everybody wins. But part of that is a, is a lesson on what is the value of your software? Well, it took me 20 hours to write and I charge $10 an hour, therefore the value is you know, a couple hundred bucks. No, that's not the way you establish value in software or any other product or service. You know, they say, took me one hammer to hit this, I'm gonna charge a hundred bucks. Yeah, but I had to know where to hit. So there was a lot of financial institutions that were a lot better off. The other thing that I learned was charge. So this is related to this, you know, charge for that software. But as as a software developer, when I was doing consulting work, so I was doing consulting work and software development while I was creating this electronic lien and title stuff. And a good friend of mine said, Troy, you need to do your clients a favor. I know you love your clients and you really want the best for them. Do them a favor and charge more money, which again, sounds counterintuitive, but he says, if you charge money, how often do you go in to meet with a client and let you sit in the waiting room, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, you're going to sit in the waiting room and and they're paying you for it. And you're, you're charging them, you know, 25, 30 bucks an hour or whatever I was charging back in the day. 
Troy, you charge them $100 an hour and they'll never have you sit for 10 seconds in the waiting room. You enter that conference room and there'll be 10 people and they'll listen to every word you say if you charge them more money. If you don't charge them, not only are they going to just feel like they're wasting your time, you're wasting their time, but they're then not going to implement your solution. If that's a hugely expensive solution, they're going to implement it. They're going to put the training and the resources behind it to actually implement it and make it part of their business operation. You charge them a tiny amount of money, well, then they have a tiny amount of interest in your software. So I immediately, and it's hard to do. It's really difficult to do for someone to say, I'm going to charge more. You know, whether you're, you're renting out a room at a bed and breakfast or whether you're charging per hour for consulting services or whatever, charge more money. Yeah, but like you said, it, it gives the, the customer buy-in to it and it makes them more likely to actually participate or implement or whatever it is that business is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, which I think is a which I think is a huge key because I think so many people think that offer free, 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 but then it's like most of the time I know if I get something for free, I'll end up downloading it or whatever it is, and I'll just never use it. Now there is a model in the freemium model. I'm not opposed oh, to a freemium right. model. There's different roles for for both. Yes, definitely. So right now you work uh, in a company called True Benefits right now yes. and you guys do wellness retreats. You're in a state right now where you're not in a level of necessity for money. So what drives your necessity level to perform in your current role? Just the challenge of doing it. So I, I sold my company, I retired, and it, it's really kind of interesting what you do when you don't have to. You know, you don't have to do it for the money. What do you do? So in the last few years, and it's interesting too, because I didn't set out with a plan to do this. So you're retired. Okay. So now you go sailing and, and you go hiking and, and that's all beautiful. Then what? You know, that gets boring after a week. So I set out to find the number one problem in the world and solve it. And I read a lot of books and I said it a lot and, and I went, you know, okay, well, is it, is it climate change? Is it, so what's the number one problem in the world and what can I do to solve that problem and, and have my, my impact? And certainly in America, I came from the health insurance field. Right? I wrote software and health insurance. I'm an Obamacare expert. I, so I did a lot with the Affordable Care Act. We wrote the first software in the nation that handled the compliance reporting for, for the Affordable Care Act for the employer in, in mandates. And I always heard the expression, move the needle. And I don't take this political at all. I just want somebody can do something to move the needle. And what we're talking about moving the needle is health insurance costs. So I looked at that and said, well, health insurance is expensive because healthcare is expensive. And healthcare is expensive because we don't eat right. So I was actually gonna go get my PhD in economics because anybody with a PhD in economics can solve all the world's problems. If you're not sure of that, ask them. They'll, they'll tell you that. You know, then you just take the next three or four years and you just get to think a lot, read and think and talk and socialize and, you know, kick around ideas, which is, you know, fascinating. But it just kind of hit me like a brick to say the number one problem in the nation, perhaps in the world, the number one problem in the nation is bad diet. 
Yes, it is that simple. You want to you want to take care of a healthcare crisis, and I'm not talking 100. percent I'm only talking 85. percent You want to talk about 85 percent of the nation's healthcare is chronic disease management, and almost all of that is lifestyle. Cut out high fructose corn syrup, sugar, you know. There's a whole bunch of things in that. Maybe move once in a while, exercise, stress reduction, mindfulness, socialization, love, sleep, adequate hydration, education. You know, there's, there's a holistic wellness that's lifestyle related that is responsible or the lack thereof is responsible for the financial disaster and the health related, the health disaster and the climate problem that we seem to be undertaking right now. You want to solve the problem. So I looked at it being a, a health insurance. I mean, I'm a licensed health insurance agent. We wrote this. We studied Obamacare. And I'm like, because they're not addressing the cause. Yeah. Everything we do, almost, I say everything, it's really more like 99%. Everything that we do is reactive. We have exceptional trauma care, but we also lose more people every day in this country from cardiovascular disease than we lost on 9-11. Cardiovascular disease, almost entirely preventable. Bad diet and exercise kills as many people as died on 9-11 and dwarfs any other problem out there financially and in terms of resources that we put into this. So what, 3,000 people die every day? We don't talk about it at all. And that's not even to talk about cancer and type 2 diabetes. The number one spend in this country for healthcare, which is the number one spend and the number one topic, um, both socially and politically, type 2 diabetes, almost entirely lifestyle. You quit the sugar, and start walking around, hiking, jogging, swimming, problem is solved. So that's what I've set out to do. And it's really been, it's, it's really been satisfying. And it, it is life-changing because it, it, keeps, it keeps growing. The more you can impact people, influence them. I've had people stay at the retreat and they'll spend a week at the retreat and they'll say, Troy, I've never in my life had a meal that didn't have meat in it until I came to your retreat. And then, since then, a year later, I've never had a meal that did. You know, I've lost 25 pounds, I, you know, yada, yada, yada. So with a, with a whole food plant-based lifestyle, there are no negative side effects. You might actually wanna be careful on, on you know, how you eat, but in terms of the number one question that people get, if they eat a whole food plant-based diet, is where do you get your protein? In this country, we have three levels of protein, way, way, way too much, way, way too much, and way too much. The only people that don't consume way too much protein are the people who eat a whole food plant-based diet because there's plant-based proteins are, are just, your four food groups should be your fruits, your vegetables, your whole grains, not refined grains, whole grains and legumes. So beans, chickpeas, just eat, eat whole wheat. Unless you have celiac, you know, there's a gluten sensitivity, but Gluten is fine. Gluten is great. Fruit is fine. Potatoes, just no French fries or potato chips. So what we do in this nation with respect to diet is almost completely wrong. So if you see it advertised on TV, there's a 99% chance it's the opposite of what you want to do. And that's what we keep subsidizing from a government level. And that's what we keep promoting. And in the insurance side of it, there is not one incentive at the national level whether it's a smoker's premium penalty that was supposed to be part of the Affordable Care Act, which made zero impact. 
The Affordable Care Act didn't save us any money on health care. We went in the wrong direction. Yeah, we moved the needle, but we didn't move it in the right direction. We want to move the needle as, as a nation. We should be talking about eating right and exercising. And there's a few other things we could talk about, but the biggest diet exercise. No, I'm definitely with you there. That's probably the biggest the biggest issue that there is in the world, that's for sure. Well, down to the last couple of questions here. And it's the last couple of questions that I that I ask everybody. So I think that and I kind of talked about it beforehand, my idea of getting closer to the best version of myself is to gain clarity on what the best version of myself looks like and could be capable of every single day, get get more clarity on that person, and then to try to take steps to get closer to him. And so what I want to ask for you personally is, is, is there a particular skill or piece of knowledge that the best version of yourself has that you don't currently have? Uh, tranquility. The, the, and it's, it's, it's a work, it's always, tranquility is always a work in progress. So for me to try to achieve tranquility, I achieved tranquility by doing less or more accurately doing what's essential. So I used to ask my marketing team and and my, my employees, senior managers all the time, ask yourself for every project you're doing, does it matter? All those words that you're putting on that marketing piece, do they matter? You'll be much more effective in your marketing piece if you just cut the number of words in half. Right. So that's what I try to do. Don't, you know, because part of it is you just get stressed out trying to do too much. You know, maybe they think, oh, you're this type A personality overachiever. No, you want to achieve something. Set out to achieve it calmly, rationally, keep moving in that direction but don't act like you're running like the, you know, the sky is falling because you have to do this and that and that. Right. Just set out to do one thing and accomplish it. Yeah, keep a then, relatively narrow focus. Yeah. Gotcha. So do, do less and you'll achieve tranquility. I love it. I love it. So before I ask the last question, I want to acknowledge you. I think that your consistency in terms of your level of necessity towards getting to where you want to go is, is super cool. And for you to now kind of at this stage in your life, take on the ambitious challenge of figuring out what the biggest challenge is in this world and then trying to tackle it as, as best you can, moving the needle forward. I think that's something that's super admirable and definitely a thing that I think a lot of us should aspire to do, maybe not at the as grand of scale right at the beginning, but try to find the biggest problem you can tackle now and to have a narrow focused mindset towards that. So I think that's, I just think that's awesome. And I want to make sure everybody supports you as much as possible. So make sure you guys go get this book, How to Launch Your Side Hustle, Start and Scale a Business with Minimal Capital. Um, go to TroyRUnderwood.com. You can buy the book on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, anywhere. There is books. Where, where else can people support you and everything that you're up to? Uh, well, if they go, if, they, if they're interested in looking at any of the retreats, we'll talk about them on TroyRUnderwood.com. And uh, just just look, do some research and see if a, uh, a diet change can help each individual. I mean, I don't, you know, one of the things about it, it's all money. That's what you learn by getting a degree in economics. Most people think it does come back to money. I actually think it comes back to utility. But since there's no economic incentive for anyone, for the most part, for good health, then people need to take it on individually. So individually, try to exercise a little bit more, move a little bit more and eat better. Even if you don't go to a whole food plant-based diet, people will have fewer um, chronic diseases. 
Yeah, there's no there's no short term economic incentive that people can put a finger on, which I think is the biggest the, the toughest thing about it. It's like there is a longer term incentive that you're not going to have healthcare issues, but there's no necessarily short term incentive, which is the problem because so many of us are for uh, immediate satisfaction and and that kind of thing. So the last question I always ask is, is similar to the second to last one, but I believe that getting closer to the best version of yourself is a constant journey, like a tre- achieving tranquility. And I think it's a unique journey. I think the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you get to the best version of yourself. So for you personally, if you could currently do or work on three things to get closer to the best version of yourself, what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? Well, I want to try something um, intellectually, emotionally, or spiritually, and physically every day, or, or at least most days. Yeah. And that, that doesn't mean I have to be working out at 100% seven days a week. Um, matter of fact, it may be that I sit for 20 minutes and just meditate. This is really hard for a lot of people who consider themselves like a type A personality, which I, I really don't. But can you turn it off? Can you run at full speed and can you stop and just listen to yourself breathe? And, and the real challenge, especially for a type A personality, is to shut out all the voices in your head. Mm-hmm. For 15 minutes a day, just shut out all the voices in your head. And when you do it, it's like looking into one of those puzzles, that three-dimensional you know, pictures, and you see it, and you go, oh, wow, I can see it. When you can shut out all the voices in your head, you'll actually just feel so relaxed. And it actually, and it's not, I'm not really touchy-feely about this. I'm more scientific. So I did the science, I did the money, I did the econ and the math. It's, to me, it's all science. This is not, oh, you need to do that to achieve tranquility so that you're tranquil. It's actually, no, this will add to your longevity. And I don't want people to live longer just for the sake of living longer. You know, stay on a respirator for another two years in bed. No, at 80 years old, you should be hiking mountains. There's no reason the human body should shut down at 78 years old and die. None whatsoever. Awesome. Well, I love that. I've never had somebody answer with that, with those, with those three. I think that's, that's, that's super cool that you have that kind of pursuit basically every single day. Well, that's all we got. I really appreciate it, Troy. Thank you so much. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this awesome episode with Troy. Make sure that you share this episode with an entrepreneur you know. Be sure to send it with someone you know that's starting a side hustle, that maybe has their own business or is looking to sell their business. This episode and his book, How to Launch Your Side Hustle, are great places for them to go to get actionable steps for their needs. Remember, if you're the entrepreneur that's saying, I'm going to be successful no matter what, or I've got to make this work no matter what, you're a necessity entrepreneur. Take steps every single day to work on your business. It won't scale immediately, nor should it, but take small efficient steps so that you can grow in a smart way and in a way that's sustainable and scalable. For now, it's time. It's time to take action, to use something you heard today so that you can get closer and closer to your best you.